Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. Today, we're talking about seafood, but not in the way you might think. Bren Smith challenges us to look beyond eating fish and instead to consider eating like a fish. Through his Thimble Island Oyster Company, Bren pioneered the concept of 3D ocean farming and views careful management of what grows in the seas, think seaweed, kelp, and even oysters and mussels, as one of the best ways that we can eat sustainably and take steps to combat climate change. The idea is that if we sustain and save the oceans, they can save us and we can grow economies too. Bren explores these concepts in his new book, Eat Like a Fish. He visited Booklarder in May 2019 and discussed his career, the environmental science behind his work, and how he helps others get started in ocean farming with Seattle-based journalist and cookbook author Sarah Dickerman. Here's Brent Smith and Eat Like a Fish. Well, you wouldn't know it by the weather today, but it's grilling season has started. Mm-hmm. It's gotten even more complicated this year because, you know, the standard dumb Seattle thing to do, meaning dumb meaning easy, is to just go buy some nice salmon and throw it on the grill. It's delicious and cliched and so delicious no one cares. With new concern about the orca populations in the Pacific Northwest, uh, that, that decision to just throw the salmon on the grill has become even more complicated. It used to be that we could just think, oh, it's a wild fishery, we're okay. But what you're suggesting in your book is maybe something even more radical, which is instead of eating that fish or along with less of that fish, we might eat like a fish. Mm-hmm. So can you describe to us what eating like a fish means? Yeah. You know, whether it's I mean, especially with salmon aquaculture, I think 70% of our salmon is farmed at this point in, in the U.S. It's, and the way, the way it's always worked is, you know, we farm whatever we've always eaten from the wild, right? So we ate tuna, salmon, things like that. So we try to farm salmon and tuna. And I think we're coming at it from a different direction and saying, okay, what does it make sense to grow? What does the ocean want us to grow, regardless of if we want to eat it or not, right? And when you ask the ocean what to grow, it becomes pretty simple. Things that don't want to swim away and you don't have to feed, right? <laughs> When you think of it that way, the benefits are it's way cheaper for the farmer, no uh, pens, no fish feed, no fertilizers, no antibiotics, none of that stuff. At the same time, all the crops are restorative, right? Mm-hmm. So growing shellfish and seaweeds, which is the only thing we grow, sequester carbon, filter nitrogen out, the farms function as artificial reefs. So from my perspective as someone who's, now they're real, I've got personal issues with moving to, into farming from fishing, right? But once you shift to be like, okay, let's get over the obsession with fish, things get way simpler in the ocean Mm -hmm. what to eat. Okay, so back up a little bit. You know, what took you to the ocean in the first place? Yeah, so I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada. My parents were draft dodgers out of Brooklyn and and had me up there, a little town of Maddox Cove, sort of bolted to the cliffs, the most eastern point in all of North America. Fisherman's Co-op. Uh, tons of little colored houses, like orange, reds, greens. They were all painted with leftover boat paint so we could find our way home drunk in the fog. Uh, and my heroes weren't, you know, astronauts or cowboys. They were fishermen. Mm-hmm. As I've gotten older and older, the why they were heroes have kind of become, has become clearer. 
And as you know, you see them out on the horizon. They own their own boats, no bosses. They live self-directed lives, succeed and fail on their own terms, and have this incredible pride of feeding the country. Right? Those are the kinds of jobs that we write and sing songs about. Right? No one's writing songs about lawyers and hedge fund <laughs> managers, right? Maybe we will at some point. But, but they write them about coal miners, about farmers, about steel workers, about fishermen. And as a kid, that's really what the kind mm -hmm. of man I wanted to be. And so you did head out to the sea. Yeah, much to my chagrin uh. and my parents. They bring me up to Newfoundland. You know, I'm born there. <laughs> I dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out, to, headed out to sea. And what was going on in fishing at that time? How was fishing changing from those small operations, one or two people in a boat, to something a little different? It's so funny because, you know, what happened in the ocean, we became too efficient, right? We're mm -hmm. so good at what we do as humans. <laughs> you know, like we're like, okay, we're going to catch fish. We catch fish better than uh, and faster than anybody ever has before. And what one of the things that happened was that after World War II, the fleets shifted over from war, the, the war posture, to catching fish. So even the pilots became spotter planes for tuna. Uh, all the different, you know, sonar and radar technology was used on the boats. And so that whole industrial machine shifted over. So by the time I hit the Bering Sea, catching cod and, and crab, it was the most efficient, destructive form of food harvesting in the, in the world. Most of the cod I was catching was going to McDonald's for the fishwood sandwich. So like mm -hmm. I was at that moment, uh, industrial food and um, you know, industrial uh, production. And I mean, to jump way far ahead, wouldn't it be fun if we used all that ingenuity, creativity to create a new climate cuisine? Right. So just we did it to make the fish stick in the 70s and 80s. Well, wouldn't uh -huh. it be fun to like figure out how the hell to get people to eat sea greens? Mm -hmm. If people forget what it was like when there really were fleets mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. I meet a lot of young sort of food activists and they're like artisanal hook and line. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. You see the day boat. And it is amazing. But I remember when it was a real job, you know, when we fed a nation. And what did it do to you emotionally to be working at that pace? Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I loved it. I mean, my first job in the Bering Sea, don't gasp, but they, um, you know, they gave me a shotgun and my job was to shoot as many seagulls out of the sky as possible <laughs> before they hit the squid bait. I mean, imagine being like 15 and you're getting paid to do this, right? <laughs> you know, I think back and I think back probably with too much romance that, you know, the humility of being in 40-foot seas, that sense of solidarity of being in the belly of a boat, working 30-hour shifts, and then that meaning that I knew from Newfoundland of feeding people. You know, we mm -hmm. really were, you know, that really was part of, our, part of our identity. And I think if I look at the arc of my life, the question is, again, how do I keep that piece of sort of a soul-filling but mm -hmm. not to be a pillager. Mm -hmm. you, know? mm -hmm. you didn't start out with your current model mm -hmm. quite mm -hmm. when you first started farming. You started out to be an oyster, well, oyster farmer. Is that after right? the cod, cod stocks crashed in mm -hmm. Newfoundland. I mean, sorry. In, yeah. So I was fishing and then the cod stocks crashed. And I headed to Newfoundland to become a fish farmer because mm -hmm. that was what we were all told. Like that was the future feeding the planet. Green jobs. It was also, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean you know, new jobs. And got disillusioned with that for all the reasons we know. Uh, now I don't go into it, and then headed down to Long Island Sound, followed a girlfriend, and ended up in the most landlocked, depressing <laughs> place I, I, I could ever end up. Found a patch of water to start oystering. Mm -hmm. and that, that was that beginning. That was that first moment of moving from a hunter-gatherer to you know this farmer. And I was a terrible farmer. I killed millions of oysters. I was running a death camp. Because <laughs> it's just different, you know, to like nurture something and like, I'm, I'm just violent. You take it, you throw it, you kill it, right? <laughs> and oysters, you just have to be like so 
arugula Zen farmerish about it, you know. How many years did it take before you felt like that part you could get down? I, I think it, it took me a solid four years, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the only skill I have is a complete refusal to leave the water. You know, <laughs> like again, so I was living in an airstream in the woods. Um, that sounded really romantic for three months. It took it stayed in there for seven years with no running water and no bathroom. Yeah, just sort of low overhead. Sold on the streets of New York City for years and years just to make a living. Mm-hmm. And then the storms of, is it 2011 and 2012, the yeah. huge storms that we know about, made you reevaluate again. So yeah. can you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So I got hit by, my oyster farm got hit by Hurricane Irene and Sandy two years in a row. And one year it was like, okay, unlucky, pick up, do it again. Two years in a row, this is the new normal, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not a scientist, I'm not, but like, I knew that, you know, it was clear that the oceans were, were changing. And I think that was the second time in my life that my life changed because of ecological collapse. One was the collapse of the cod fishery. And environmentalists always, you know, it's all about birds, bears, fish, seals. The environmental crisis is, it, you know, we say there are no jobs on a dead planet. It's an economic issue. It's a, mm-hmm. the way folks like me experience it. So when the cod stocks crashed, 30,000 fishermen got thrown out of work. Largest layoff in, Amer- in Canadian history. And just, I mean, it gutted a culture that had been built up over 100 years. And like, it's amazing to see something thriving and then just completely disappear with literally in a matter of weeks. Mm-hmm. So then... When Sandy came in, same thing, right? I'm the canary in a coal mine for a climate crisis that was arriving 100 years earlier than expected. Mm -hmm. But I refused to leave the water, and that was the beginning. I always say Sandy was the best thing that ever happened to me, oddly enough. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning of adaption. Well, not to talk about Washington State, but it's a very Seattle thing to talk about Washington State to all visiting us. New feast do, too. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the same time here, we had a crisis in our shellfish industry around ocean acidification and actually began to um, dive deep. We had a commission, and now we have a state practice, which has now become a model for other states Mm -hmm. because we were feeling, you were feeling the storm surge and we were seeing, because we already have some upwelling, we were seeing our oceans suddenly much more acidic than we imagined. And because we have such an incredibly robust shellfish industry and their powerful lobby, our governor actually did something about it. One of the areas of interest was seaweed. So tell us why seaweed? Why is that potentially restorative. I mean, when I was doing the book, it was fascinating because um, I discovered two things, and we'll, we can talk about the second, second in a bit, but is the Western culinary history of seaweed, which mm-hmm. is really surprising. But I also found that there was this incredible history of ocean farming going back 5,000 years. I mean, the, the, the First Nation folks in Washington State, they, had clam, they did clam walls, right, and clam farm. And then you, just, you can just track that for thousands of years of people. There's the fish growing sort of sect Mm-hmm. of ocean farming. And then there are folks that grew all seaweeds and, and shellfish. Seaweed as sort of, you know, we, what I would say is that, you know, Mother Nature created these technologies that are incredible to mitigate climate change. I mean, we don't need to, you know, necessarily a huge Silicon Valley, you know, new invention. There's seaweed in there. Seaweed's called the sequoia of the seas, kelp, one of the fastest growing plants on earth. Folks soaks up five times more carbon than land-based plants. Dana Goodyear had a great phrase. Uh, she's a, a food writer of the New Yorker. She called the culinary equivalent of the electric car, <laughs> which is a really pretty phrase. And it scales. That's the, like, we have 30 years to address our climate and food crisis. So everything we, all of our solutions, we have to ask the question, can they scale, but can they scale right? 
right? Mm-hmm. Can we scale in a way that's sort of sustainable and regenerative and community-based? Mm-hmm. So now we need to get back to the eating part because we're in a cookbook store. Yeah. <laughs> Probably most of us have enjoyed a lot of nori in our day, mm-hmm. maybe even send our kids to school with nori in their, in their lunch bags. But seaweed is not a, an everyday occurrence. It's not something that we would build a meal around. Yeah. First of all, should it be something we build a meal around? Mm-hmm. Just from a taste perspective, mm-hmm. from a pleasure perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, secondly, why is it important that and seaweed has a lot of potential in other applications too. Why is it important that food is a piece of yeah. this of this farming yeah. that you're doing? You know, from my perspective, seaweed's disgusting. Right? <laughs> you know, like from the fisherman, non-foodie. Actually, one of the first things that made me switch was when I found a McDonald's had a seaweed burger in the 1990s for four years, and it became the official hamburger of the National Basketball Association. <laughs> now you're talking, right? <laughs> but I think. Over time, I've really learned to fall in love with it. You know, its color, its texture, the way it grows, but I've fallen in love with it as a farmer, right? Mm -hmm. What you find is if you farm the same patch of water long enough is you get these real meroirs. Depending on what level of the water column you're growing, the water temps, the time of year, you get different tastes, different Mm -hmm. textures. And I think that's where it gets really exciting. We, we now, we've, at Greenway, which is a nonprofit we have, has trained 50 farmers around the country. Mm-hmm. We're in seven states. And every farm, it tastes different. And I think for us to fall in love with seaweeds, we need to get to that next level of, of taste and subtlety. Mm-hmm. If I tasted iceberg lettuce out of a supermarket now, I wouldn't like it. It's been mm-hmm. drained of all flavor. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know what I mean? Uh, it's until you get down into those delici- that mm-hmm. deliciousness, I mm-hmm. think is key. So if you're tasting, if you're trying to taste that, Marouar, you're not going to taste. You're not going to do a spicy, spicy sauce. How would you try to um, get a feel for what the like the base operating taste of a seaweed is? One of our favorite things is actually turn into bouillon cubes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, instead of a chicken bouillon cube, mm-hmm. um, and that's good for two reasons. One is you get all these different flavors, mm-hmm. right? But also you get over the trauma of the home chef, right? Of like, mm-hmm. what do you do with this mm-hmm. thing? Well, you just throw it into it and mm-hmm. make it a, as a stockpot. When we're talking to Rene Renzeppi at Doma about this, and he he was saying that you know for a long time he just for the last five minutes when he boils his vegetables he throws in some seaweed just to enhance mm-hmm. that uh, that flavor. The other thing is I think the the way to move it to the center plate is to kind of what I think of as desushify it. Right. Mm-hmm. I used to work with seafood chefs and they didn't really know how to what to do with seaweed. They'd wrap it around fish or they'd do salads, things like that. I gave it to Brooks Headley in who's got a bunch of recipes in the in the book. And he's a, a punk rock drummer who became uh, a, a pastry chef at Del Posto and then started Superiority Burger. Mm-hmm. And he is he specializes in making vegetables unhealthy. So he took the kit, <laughs> right? And he took the kelp and tur- made barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. Now, the brilliance of that is you had some heat of the barbecue sauce, you had the roundness of the parsnips, you had the mm-hmm. crunch of the breadcrumbs, and that's when it gets really interesting. So people eat that, just don't even, like, mm-hmm. they, they, don't, they don't even think about seaweed when they mm-hmm. eat it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to take some of, that, some of that brilliance. And then you just told me something now that isn't in the book, but that one of the best ways to sell seaweed as a food uh, is to, you've been having a lot of success with corporate cafeterias and corporate yeah. dining halls. We sell an incredible amount to Google and other places because they're trying to attract talent with good food. 
Mm-hmm. And actually, they've you know they stolen most of the good chefs, and they they order enough volume that makes it worth it for a farmer. Like mm-hmm. a lot of boutique restaurants, it's just not, mm-hmm. not enough volume. You're sort of short circuiting the complicated distribution of exactly. to, gro- to the grocery system. Yeah, which yeah. is brutal. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. low margin, and so you know blended burgers with mushroom, beef, you know, um, and uh, uh, kelp do all the time. I think we can think of it as a vegetable, and again. I like kelp because it's a it's got such a mild flavor at least where we grow it um, that it's a good gateway drug. But this can only be a we can't expect everything out of this one vegetable, right? There are ten thousand plants mm-hmm. in the ocean; thousands of them are edible. If mm-hmm. we're serious about climate cuisine, then we should be doing you know no one's done a nutritional analysis of a thousand plants mm-hmm. underwater ever, mm-hmm. right? Well, there's going to be there's water shortage. There's a there's a nutrient crisis on land. Like we should get going doing mm-hmm. doing that. And then all these efforts to make kelp delicious, well, suddenly we can do it with a whole wide range of... Who's researching the potential market and the potential applications of seaweed right now? The one company that's, uh, that has done the most, the most in-depth nutritional analysis is actually Purina, uh, pet food, because their margin is so low... They're really worried about their protein sources in the future because they take all the cuttings from the from you know uh, the different factory farms. So they've really dove in deeply, and you're gonna you I don't know if you've already seen there are already pet foods with seaweeds mm-hmm. sort of rolling out, and that's not just to catch the latest consumer trend. They actually want to start shifting into more into more like sea plant based diet for pets. Google has uh, is doing incredible amount of work on this now, and this is a scary thing for me as a farmer. Like we created a nonprofit and a network of farmers to open source our farming model, train the new generation of farmers, sort of we believe who farms matters, right? This Mm -hmm. is, yeah, this is a great, you know, crop that we can do, but who's growing it? Are these going to be thousand acre farms, banana plantations at sea, or are there going to be networks of small scale farms that add up to a lot of volume? And we're seeing some of the biggest fish processors in the country now, uh, permitting grounds and trying to vertically integrate the industry. We have, you know, it's gotten a little crazy. The Bitcoin crowd has gotten in trying to get it. I had a Saudi arms dealer trying to get land in, I mean, you know, sea leases in California. There's a bit Mm -hmm. of a gold rush Mm -hmm. because they, everybody looks out to sea and it's a blank slate. Our food system's being pushed out to sea. Like all the reasons I'm for it, well, the sharks are too. Mm-hmm. So that does, mm-hmm. that does worry me. That's one question that, that occur, you know, as you read about it, you can't help but think palm oil sounded like maybe a good replacement for petroleum products at one yeah. point, you know, or you mentioned uh, at some point you called it the soy of the sea. You mm-hmm. don't really want to duplicate what soybeans farming looks like, exactly. right? So you're saying you're trying to, to model it in a way that, that can grow quickly, but without growing on an industrial exactly. scale. I mean, it's interesting. So like, Soy, deforestation, addicted to pesticides, you know, huge monoculture farms. What's interesting about kelp is like how much evil can you do with kelp, mm-hmm. right? In because it doesn't use water, fertilizer, mm-hmm. all the, you know, no soil. So more kelp is just generally mm-hmm. way better, right? I'll say the interesting thing about non-food uses for seaweeds, especially kelp, is that, you know, we, we use this fertilizer. So this idea that you can grow fertilizer regionally not imported and actually, you mm-hmm. know, have far. So we grow it in New England and use it on the organic farm. So all that nitrogen, phosphorus, minerals, those are all things farmers want, land-based farmers. Mm-hmm. So we grow it for them and bring it. If you feed cattle a 2% diet of asparagopsis, a type of uh, uh, red algae, you get a 58% reduction in methane output. Hmm. Just stunning. So the other opportunity here is bridging land and sea. Like I think there's going to be a lot of agricultural promise and solution at the water's mm-hmm. edge. Mm-hmm. And we just need to, you know, mm-hmm. tap into it. I want to be a kelp farmer now. What qualities will help me? Welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, 
it's interesting. Like, so we have this training program. It turns out fishermen are terrible at growing plants because we're violent, right? So you just take it and you rip it off and you don't want to think about it. You just chuck it off the boat. Our young land-based farmers who come to us who can't afford land, right? Mm-hmm. Are coming to us because it's $50 an acre to lease uh, water rights. They're incredible farmers. They don't know anything about the ocean. They don't know tides. They don't know, you know, their boats. But they're these incredible, like, nurturer of plants. Mm-hmm. So their quality of their crops is just incredible. To your question, you know, Green Wave has a training program. We have an application process. Mm-hmm. The challenge we have is that we've got requests to start farms in every coastal state in North America and 20 countries around the world. In Long Island alone, we have 300 people, mm-hmm. right? We're getting thousands of requests. In California, it's like, like I don't know, it's six, 7,000 people. It's just mm-hmm. insane. Um, so the demand is really there, and we don't have the capacity. One of the things we're working on right now is this online sort of toolkit so mm-hmm. people can take and start uh, themselves. So if you want to start your farm, the great thing about underwater is you don't really have to fight gravity, so it's pretty cheap to do. Mm-hmm. So you need 20 acres, you need a boat, you need between twenty dollars and $30,000. And that'll get you started, right? You can be up and growing. And the, as the you said year. in the book, you're, it, you don't own the ocean, obviously. You get a lease for the sub yeah. surface. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you don't even own that water. What you right. own is um, the right to grow shellfish and seaweeds. Mm-hmm. So anybody can do anything else. You know, they, you can boat, swim, kayak. People can commercially fish on your farm. Just no one can grow shellfish and seaweeds, which is really good. It's like a, you know, a process right rather than a property mm-hmm. right. The other thing I'd say is because the farms, I mean, I don't know if we described the farm, but it's just underwater scaffolding made out of rope, right? You've got some anchors. They go up to the surface. You've got buoys. And you've got lines about 8 to 10 feet below the surface. And from there, you're growing your kelp downward, you got mussels growing downward in something called mussel socks. There's some pictures in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, scallops are in lantern nets. But it's got a small footprint because we're using the entire water column. Um, and it's got a low aesthetic impact. Mm-hmm. Right? You look out and all you'd see is some buoys. And the fact that anybody can boat and fish over it, we don't have a lot of permitting mm-hmm. issues. What's interesting is until people start seeing the farms, really they're, you know, the hangover of aquaculture. They're like, we don't right. want this. Right. You put it in, and they're like, oh, this is what it is? Right. right. And everybody calms down. And we're permitting hundreds and hundreds of acres just in New England right now. One other thing about the farmers, and you and I were talking about this a little bit, is so um, we stepped back at Greenway and looked at who was in the industry, mm-hmm. you know, who's growing. And it turned out to be majority women. So in the hatcheries, the farmers, the policy folks, the you know, entrepreneurs starting new companies, majority women, which is a huge surprise, right? Mm-hmm. This was originally supposed to be about transition, mm-hmm. former fishermen, old crusty folks like me into growing these vegetables, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, women have just come in mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one of my favorite is, is um, Catherine Puckett out of Rhode Island. She's on Block Island. She grows uh, clams, oysters, and kelp all together. She has a pink boat. <laughs> and she has an all-male crew. Mm-hmm. And they love their jobs because they get to stay on the island year-round, right? It's still leave. But they hate working on a pink boat. Right? <laughs> and maybe this is really what the new economy will look like out in the ocean. Like, this could be one of the first things, like, you know, economies that women's, uh, women are actually the architects of. Mm-hmm. And that would be fascinating, you know, see how you all do, do it differently. I have one more quick question for you, which is, you know, what has been the hardest for the farmers along the way? It sounds so silly, but I never really processed the degree to which, you know, our soil turns over a thousand times a day and we can't see what we grow. Mm-hmm. Like that's a really hard place to grow food, right? Mm-hmm. The, it's such a dynamic environment. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that our crop, like our kelp will be in the same spot, different 
like it'll be three feet one year and then 15 feet the following year mm-hmm. in the exact same spot. That's a nightmare for a farmer, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's why technology is actually key. We have sensors in four states right now. And as a side note, our farmers that are in this program are getting paid to harvest the data off their farms oh, to sell the tech companies and to scientists. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, every, we're all obsessed with, you know, farms equal food. I think in the future, it's really that farms equal harvesting food, harvesting data, and harvesting what we call ecosystem services, so blue carbon to sell, and that and that's the farmer of the future. They're sort of mm-hmm. these multiple uh, income streams. Okay, we'll open up to questions. What kind of boat do you need in less than twenty to thirty thousand dollars? There are like a hundred different ways you can sort of. Uh, it should just be based on whatever boats are lying around. I started in just a seventeen foot skiff. Right. What's interesting about you know each species requires its own thing. So. I ended up with a 26-foot, not that big, uh, privateer. It's got a wide beam, so it's you know a lot of room to work, but it's not that long. I'm out there all winter, so I've got a, a hole that's about a half inch to break um, break ice. But generally, an old lobster boat will work, and you just you know do a little re-rigging of it. And then the twenty thirty thousand dollars is permit cost. You need some navigation buoys. It was like two hundred fifty bucks a piece, but you got to anchor everything, and then um, ropes and um, and floats. And then just seed and things like that, you know. Uh, marketing question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you mentioned seaweed, seaweed, seaweed. I would say that the prejudice against the term seaweed, because it's called weed, what about sea greens or something yeah. like that? <laughs> exactly. Has that been discussed? Yeah, and that's actually what we call it. So your instinct's exactly right. I'm terrible because I, I actually talk in the book how, like, I haven't figured out the lexicon of this. In fact, renaming a lot of seaweeds is going to be key. In the, I've got a description mm-hmm. of 10 seaweeds, and I make up some of the names in there. So there's going to be a real rebranding. But even my farming, I call 3D farming, restorative ocean farming, just ocean farm, vertical ocean farming, and we, get, we have to figure it out. All I care about is it's not called seaweed and not called aquaculture. <laughs> For the connoisseurs, then learning the different kinds is the pleasure and the pleasure yeah. of the knowledge exactly. is going to would be part of that yeah so your product from your farm um is mostly fresh is that how you sell it to google etc uh, the only way i'm legally allowed to sell it as fresh is if i put it in a box like lettuce and leave it open mm-hmm. well it's going to all wilt and die mm-hmm. as soon as i shut off the oxygen then you know little things grow in it and you know and it, it, it doesn't uh, follow hassle rules i quite honestly i sold it illegally for years I didn't follow any of the rules. That's the good thing about being a fisherman. You live in the gray legally. But uh, now we blanch it all. So we blanch it at 180 degrees for 30 seconds, uh, cool down, and then we um, package it and freeze it. I think that might be it for now. And thank you so much. Thank you. Great to talk with you. Many thanks to Brent Smith for visiting us in Seattle and to Sarah Dickerman for leading the conversation. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Eat Like a Fish and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in person and mention that you heard about the book on the podcast, you'll also get the 10% discount. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. 
I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.